China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Mary Gallagher, the Amy and Alan Lowenstein Professor in Democracy, Democratization, and Human Rights at the University of Michigan, and Blake Miller, an Assistant Professor of Computational Social Science at the London School of Economics. Today we'll be discussing their recent article, Who, Not What? The Logic of China's Information Control Strategy. Mary and Blake, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Mary, I'd like to direct the first question your way. Who is Franz Sherman and how was he helpful as you and Blake were conceptualizing this project? So Franz Sherman was a sociologist. He taught at Berkeley for many years. I did not know him personally. He was assigned to me as a undergrad at Smith College by Steve Goldstein, who was my first professor of Chinese politics. And I had that book all the way through grad school, and then I still have it today. I read it also in in grad school when Lynn White taught me Chinese politics at Princeton. I think you know if you go to that book and it's a very big book. It has a kind of functional functionalism to it, which was very popular uh, among that school of sociology at the time. And it's really a study of the organizations of the Chinese Communist Party as they were in the 1960s. But what I found really useful about the book was, particularly in the second edition, when Sherman is trying to deal with the Cultural Revolution, which is going on at the time, and of course he has limited information. But he's looking at students and student leaders and seeing the growth of、um, new sources of kind of social authority among the student leaders, and、um, his, you know, his. Understanding of the Cultural Revolution was probably not 100% correct, but I think the way in which Sherman tries to talk about elites in general or leaders in general is really helpful in that book to understand how the party is thinking now about the rise of social and economic elites within China that that may or may not be party members or tied closely to the party. You quote a sentence from Sherman, and I wondered if you could unpack this in light of the. Of the article, if power is the key element in an organization, authority is the key element in a social system. What what's the distinction between power and authority, and in an organization and a social system? I think the the way in which it's helpful to understand kind of this idea of cyberspace or you know space on the internet or the public sphere on the internet is that it is not easily. Amenable to party organization, and particularly in the case of of China, which we'll talk about later, I think with with the delegation of so much censorship and information control to private companies, which you know may or may not change as the crackdown on these companies continues by by Xi Jinping. But the party's、um, approach to cyberspace has been to, and this is what we argue in the paper, has been to really try to deal with voices on the internet who have a lot of influence, who have in a sense a lot of authority. That is not easily containable within a party organization, right? You can't have a party cell that's you know in charge of the whole internet. And so the part, the Communist Party has had to try to deal with having a vibrant internet, you know, having big tech companies, having successful social media, but at the same time containing voices on it that might challenge the party's rule. Blake, I wonder if you could build on that and talk a bit about. 
how the Communist Party thinks about cyberspace in terms of its approach to governance and, and regime security. Obviously, the narrative outside of China has been since you know, the 1990s is that, you know, information technology, including the internet, was going to be this extraordinarily powerful universal acid that was going to eat away at, you know, structures of control, ideological control. So I wanted to ask you how you think the party sees cyberspace. Is it is it just an arena of unalloyed threats? Is this a, a space of opportunity for the party to strengthen elements of, of governance and regime legitimacy? It's really interesting to see the continuity of uh, the approach that the Chinese government has to information, both before the, the rise of the internet and then the rise of social media, and looking back all the way to the revolution and the way that it dealt with the information threats from, uh, from its rivals uh, then. You see this constant uh, discussion of control of the internet in very militaristic terms about occupying the high ground, about the united front, about making sure that you are basically getting to a, a, a space that you know the party has not yet occupied and occupying it before non-party social forces can occupy it. And I think that's really what we're trying to talk about in this paper is that um, the approach to the internet is more about controlling, I guess, the, the public sphere and, and public space through individuals and through social networks. And I think that, that there's some, some interesting continuity there between the pre-internet age and the current internet era. What's, um, I think, different is that the route to like actually identifying the source of counter-hegemonic information, uh, it's a lot easier to, to find someone who, for example, shares a viral tweet that then creates, you know, some sort of public opinion emergency. And that allows a state a lot more power to control the narrative because they have a greater network where they're listening to, you know, potential threats and they can identify the source of those threats and try to either co-opt those individuals who are behind those threats or uh, repress them in order to, I guess, mo modulate the, the discourse power as it is distributed across the Internet. Like, can I ask you just because it comes up in the paper and, and I think you've used it and I'm sure it'll be used again. What does counter-hegemonic mean? So counter-hegemonic doesn't necessarily mean anti-regime. So, for example, I think one of the examples that we bring up earlier in the paper is this very strange, um, <laughs> like, joke website called Nehan Duanzi. And it was shut down, and a lot of people were really confused about why it was shut down, because it was kind of like a prankster joke-type Reddit 4chan area of the internet. And it wasn't necessarily very political, but it was organizing people, bringing them together, creating this, this social space that the party could not easily inject itself into. And because of that, it was seen as a threat. So when we say counter-hegemonic counter -hegemonic discourse or counter-hegemonic spaces, what we mean is just something that the party has not been able to, to insert itself into or to adequately control. Um, so that can be anti-regime content and, or it could be just, you know, some seemingly innocuous joke website like Nehan Duanzi. Mary, I wonder if you could help set the scene before the next few questions. I want to dig into the actual argument of the paper itself, but maybe to help scene set a little bit, a perspective on how information governance 
has undulated, for example, let's say after ni- 1989. We're obviously in a particularly strict moment right now under, under Xi Jinping. For comparison, how strict? In other words, have we seen various shifts in how the party has, has felt threatened by or seen opportunities in uh, information governance and kind of bring us up to around the time that your research takes place or is focusing on, which is around 2012? So I think it can, we could make this argument about the trajectory of information control, including alongside of this, which is something related, which is the way in which the regime has repressed social actors who, you know, maybe, maybe challenging the state, but also maybe just doing things that the state no longer is in favor of. And the way the, the paper draws this out is to look at both information control and repression. Um, since 1989. And 1989, as I teach it when I teach this in to students who may not, you know, of course, they're very, they didn't live through this period, that the 19, 1989 repression of students and, and citizens in China was really a failure. I mean, the regime lost a lot of legitimacy, lives were lost, the army had to kill Chinese citizens. And I think the regime knew that even though they successfully put down the movement, that repression could be done much more targeted. And the line that we have in the paper, which I think I would credit to, to Blake, not me, is um, nowadays it's more of a scalpel, not a hammer, right? So you're trying to carve out kind of like a cancer, the parts of social media or even the parts of society that they see as particularly problematic, but not making everyone else feel encumbered in the same way or as repressed or, or silenced. And that can even be the case, and this is why the paper was titled Who Not What, in the sense that we have some evidence in the paper that if you are kind of a nobody on the internet, you might have a lot more freedom in what you say. But if you're a big V user, as the the term that was used in China at the time for influencers, your speech is going to be much more carefully policed. And I think that is basically the story from 1989 to 2012 where the regime is is learning, it's studying other countries. It is, I think, initially quite worried about the internet. You know, of course, Bill Clinton talked about it as being on the wrong side of history and nailing Jello to a wall. But by the time we're around 2012, I think the the Chinese government is increasingly confident that this is a tool that they can manage and use. What we might see now, and I guess we can come back to this later, is I think less confidence by Xi Jinping that this is the case. And and perhaps that's why we see this tightening. So I wouldn't say that this is, you know, in a sense, it's almost like very, very tight at the end uh, in the early 1990s, a kind of loosening. But of course, for people who are really on the outs with the regime, it's not loosening, it's just becoming more effective. And now what I see, again, is a more general tightening. Yeah, and if I can add to that too, I think one of the interesting things about the way in which the the regime has changed its repressive strategy throughout the history of the internet in China is um, in the early part, um, of course, there was some kind of tolerance for certain types of grievances, certain types of protests, certain types of petitioning of the government that were atomistic and economistic and that weren't necessarily system challenging. And I think one of the things that initially worried the regime, and I think what can be seen in the data set that we are exploring in this paper, is that as uh, social media became more and more a part of daily life, 
the regime started to realize, oh, wow, these atomistic and economistic threats that were not necessarily the hugest problem for us. We didn't see them as like transforming into bigger system challenging threats. They can use the internet as a means of linking up all of these counter hegemonic narratives and identifying problems with the system and becoming system challenging threats. So there's this, I guess, change as social media became a lot more part of everyone's life in the way that these particular threats were dealt with. And I think that's why we see a lot of uh, money and effort being spent on um, surveillance and um, a lot of effort being uh, focused on social media and identifying these kind of early threats so that they can prevent the spread. Right. So again, part of our argument is that this is about social networks and social space. And the problem with the Internet is that these little grievances can be linked up and become a really potentially a big threat for the regime system, uh, the system in general. A conspiratorial question. I, and this is ironic, given that just over the past 12 hours, Tencent has come on and apologized for creating really great games that kids want to spend eight hours a day on. But as I was hearing you talk, like I was wondering if to what extent is it cheaper for the party to monitor cyberspace and have people almost move from real world public square interactions to online interactions into some sort of like digital soma, which they can then use tools of, of co-option engagement, repression for sure, but from a regime, I don't want to make everything about sort of regime survival because that's a little bit tedious and that's not what they spend most of their time on, but is that an easier space for them to govern? And looking into the future, does a world in which citizens are more wrapped in cyberspace as a as their new sort of public square, is that better from the party's perspective on a, a resource scarcity and also a kind of a management perspective? Well, I think what's interesting is that there is a very clear connection between these real world threats of collective action or unrest and the governance of cyberspace online. In the manuals that we're going to discuss earlier that we look at in the paper, oftentimes local governments are encouraged to uh, invest time and money into building systems to automatically or uh, manually scour the internet for threats and respond as quickly as possible. A lot of these manuals refer to the golden four hours, which is a time period whereby you have you have to have, like after identifying the threat, come up with an appropriate response and notified the appropriate authorities about uh, what's called a public opinion emergency. And one type of these type of emergencies could be, you know, someone sharing a photo of an unhygienic milk stand, right? And of course, this is a very sensitive subject, health safe, and safety of food. And some of these local governments might have these systems in place that are searching for potential keywords like milk and hygiene online. And once they see those, they have to have this dealing process in place. So I think you're onto something there about how dealing with these real life threats becomes easier when you can preempt things online, when people are posting about, you know, these nascent threats online. But I don't think that they're approaching it in a way that they're, they're trying to cultivate protest online or any kind of uh, contention online rather than in the real world. 
Yeah, I was just thinking if I were if I were sitting in the cockpit of the you know the the state security apparatus, I'd rather have everyone spending their time plugged into the matrix. Also, because I now as a as a security official can monitor an exponential number of individuals. Whereas back in the old days, you know, this is why you had neighborhood neighborhood watch systems because it's a one for one or maybe you know one to ten interaction. But in the cyberspace. This just gives much more of a panopticon ability. It, this is not important, but just as another thing I was just thinking is, of, of course, we see parallels here where you've got, you know, teenagers now are you're seeing declining levels of drug use, for example, drink driving because they don't have to leave their house as much to have the same level of interaction. Not a great proxy for what we're talking about here, but I, it just made me think about that connection between there's almost a a positive substitutability in some sense between, from a governance perspective, getting people off the roads, literally and metaphorically, and into the cyber world, even if it comes with, as, as you talk, you know, as you talk about in the paper, costs, and some new sort of problems that, that a regime would have, would have to monitor. I think that's true. But I, I think that the government or the, the Communist Party is also very clearly worried about not just kind of, you know, real world collective action, people out on the streets. I think increasingly when you see moments of crisis in China, and we talk about it in the paper when we talk about the Bo Lai case, but you can see it more recently with the death of Dr. Li Wenliang at the beginning of COVID, or more, much more recently during the Henan floods, where the government is really actually worried just about losing legitimacy. And so I think it goes way beyond just the idea of people protesting on the street, but actually that there could be sort of a sea change of opinion. I think the, the Li Wenliang one was, was the most, I think, dangerous because at that moment, it's, it did seem like the information control infrastructure broke down. But that's not in the paper because our paper is about 2012. So if I can add to that, too, I mean, I think what's really interesting when we look into the actual log data of uh, Sina Weibo when they're censoring things, one of the contributions of this data set is to kind of is, is, a, is a corrective of this idea that the only thing that the government cares about is collective action, because the vast majority of the censorship requests that are being made are censorship requests about government leadership. So uh, a lot of those are criticisms of government leadership or discussions of the wealth of government leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to um, give the impression that, that they are single-mindedly focused on real-world collective action. Final, final question before we get to the actual paper, and it's related to the paper for the audience members as a methodological point. Blake, you and Mary waded through what I'm sure were some fairly turgid manuals that were feeding into and informing opinion guidance, information governance um, can you tell us a little bit about w what these were, who's putting these out, and then some of your top line insights about what they taught you and Mary about how China's approaching these problems? Yeah, so um, when I was working on my PhD, I, I was able to avail myself of the China librarians and the China library at uh, Michigan, and they were able to procure some manuals and books and textbooks that were directed at local government cadres about opinion guidance and opinion management. So I collected, I think about 60 or 70 of these and went through and tried to, I guess, understand the, the discourse of, you know, how the state manages public opinion, how they deal with emergencies, how they respond to crises. 
And one of the things that kept coming up was the idea of opinion leaders. And what was surprising is how often these particular manuals that were, um, these were written by, by government presses. A lot of them had the like kind of the, the code names for uh, that you see in like people's daily <laughs> for the authors. And they would, they would say things like avoid brute force censorship at all costs and instead focus on building consensus and focus on creating an environment where there is discussion, but where our point of view predominates. So there was that kind of theme throughout all these books where the idea was not that the goal is, is censorship. The goal is rather to affect the relative discourse power of different groups of people online. And that's, I think, something that Rong Bing Han, who we talked about earlier, discusses a lot in his book about how there's added credibility when you have some contention online, but the relative discourse power is disproportionately in the government camp. So uh, that was really interesting. And that's kind of what uh, started this exploration of who, not what, in this paper, trying to interrogate what exactly the government strategy was for information control. Seamless transition, Blake. So Mary, can I ask you, now that we've covered a lot of level setting ground, um, what is the core argument, which is you have a really nice title of the paper. I always appreciate titles where the thesis is kind of packed in a really concise way into the title, but who, not what? What is the main argument that you and Blake are making here? So the main argument is that at least in terms of when the government is requesting information from social media companies about content online, that they care more about who's doing the posting than what the content of the posts are. That doesn't mean that content doesn't matter. That's not our argument. And there's lots of other research that shows that through keyword deletion and other types of automated censorship, you know, we all know that there are certain things you just cannot discuss on the Chinese social media space. But in terms of what the government is really interested in being reported back to it, it wants to know who's saying what, in a sense. And so the paper looks both at some specific areas where there was some just interesting stuff in the leaked logs, and then also does some analysis of the entire content of the logs to sort of look at what sorts of things the regime cares about. So the idea being, if I think you say in the paper, if you're a nobody, again, within the bounds of reason, I'm sure if a nobody's calling for Xi Jinping to be overthrown, that, that's, that's going to get the, the axe, but sort of... Keteris paribus, if you've got a nobody making an inflammatory comment, that would not likely receive as much attention as a big V saying something which could be even a diminished statement, but nonetheless that their ability to make this, the potential virality of this statement is what's going to matter much more. Is that the kind of basic finding? Yeah, the idea that virality and influence are the most important factors. And going back to the things that Blake was saying earlier about networks, it's the notion that if you're thinking about the internet as this huge space of networks, if it's about controlling discourse and shutting down counter-hegemonic voices, then naturally you're going to go after the nodes that are sort of most important in a network and shut the, either shut those down, but in, also, in other cases, co-opt them. There's a lot of massaging of the, the logs are very interesting to look at, as, as Blake was noting earlier, because the logs and the instruction manuals. Because in both cases, you see instructions not to use brute force censorship, but rather 
to massage public opinion in a way that I think is perhaps understandable if you study China and you understand how the CCP works. But I think from the outside where there's this just sense that everything is just brute force censorship, I don't think that's the case. And can you re reiterate again, what is the downside or the cost to the party from just having a brute force censorship? Blake was mentioning some of the work that's been done to show that you know, manicured contention in the public square may be helpful. Are there other costs that keep from Beijing, you know, from just having a, a zero tolerance approach that anything that's deemed to be deleterious to the regime's image, legitimacy, and or anything that's even getting within 15 miles of collective action? Why isn't that just immediately scrubbed, either because some of the private companies just know that they've got to take proactive steps and or Beijing isn't just sending out constant feeders saying, delete this, dump that. Why, why is that not the case? I think there's a number of different reasons. And we talk about them in the paper, but we cite other people's work. But both Peter Lorenzen and Martin Dimitrov have talked about the use of allowing protests or, you know, allowing petitioning as a means of collecting information. So if social media is completely shut down and no one can say anything negative about the government, then the government loses a huge source of information. And this is something that authoritarian regimes in general struggle with because they don't have the tool of elections, right? It's not easy for them to measure public support. But if they can allow for some degree of contention online, then they can use that as a way to, you know, target people who clearly are going to challenge the regime, but maybe also address the grievances of people who are simply upset about, you know, a local government or that's corrupt. And so I think we've, across a broad range of issues, you can see the CCP being adaptive in that way and, and not just using uh, the hammer. I think also it probably has something to do with this notion that as China moves to its next stage of development, that it needs to cultivate creativity, it needs to dominate in these new sectors like tech and social media, and so that it needs to take a balanced approach to how they deal with people who are in those spaces. In addition to that, I talked earlier about the goal being to manipulate the distribution of discourse power in favor of the regime, and having that contention gives credibility to the regime's point of view. This is what Rongbin Han says. But also, Molly Roberts has a great book where she talks about how if you just brute force censor things, there can be a tremendous backlash, and you can actually counterintuitively give people more access to counter-hegemonic information. So she uh, looks at the um, censorship of Instagram and how uh, when Instagram was censored, the amount of people who were jumping over the Great Firewall increased dramatically. So there are these threats that exist on a large number of fronts that the regime has to kind of tiptoe carefully. They can't just stop social media from existing. Like, I think clearly if you took away people's WeChat, there would be riots on the street. Sticking with you for a minute, Blake, we've mentioned these data sets. Can you unpack what are these, how did you get these, and how did you use them for the, for the design of this paper? Yeah, so I, I talked a little bit about the manuals. The manuals were simply just uh, scouring the internet for, you know, different types of manuals that were about opinion guidance directed at local governments. And these were were all over Taobao. <laughs> you, they weren't something that were secret or hidden from view. But the logs themselves, these were actually leaked to the Committee to Protect Journalists by a 
former employee of uh, Sina Weibo. And this employee apparently uh, reached out to the Committee to Protect Journalists and had saved all of these logs and felt guilty for the work that they had done censoring content on the behalf of uh, Sina. And what these logs are is just notes that record the censorship directives that are being received by Sina by variety of different government agencies. And then also what's really interesting is Sina Weibo's particular response to those directives and what they decide to do in response, um, which can be quite interesting because clearly they have interests that are not going to be the same interests as the as Communist Party. And they have business interests. So um, sometimes they'll actually disobey these these directives in order to get ahead of their competitors. But that's not necessarily what this paper is about. But yeah, these logs, I went through them for my dissertation, kind of cataloged them, categorized them. And I think what's interesting is we have not only the content of the log, so the, the social media post that is to be targeted or the category of social media posts that is to be targeted, but also what is to be done so we can you can report people up to the authorities, you can, you know, hide it from view, you can basically, uh, some of them are as granular as like, okay, people can talk about Borshilai and what's going on, but they have to use official news media for it. And it can't be inciting or it can't be really critical. Can you talk a little bit more about and you guys have a nice image of one of these logs in the paper where you break apart or you at least, you know, color code the different components of it. But for listeners, can you give us a sense of kind of what is one of these logs look like what's in it? The other the other question I have is this is one of those systems that from 35,000 feet sounds really well oiled. But I just all the room for discrepancies and disagreements and misinterpretations and malinterpretations and also you have events which have never, you know, sui generis events, which no one in the system has ever dealt with before. And so that someone's having to make a judgment call and saying, you know, this one, we're going to kind of want to soft pedal this one or no, no, this is a, you know, let's let's clamp down hard. And, and knowing that all of us put our I think most of us put our pants on one leg at a time. I would just love to hear any thoughts or impressions, granular or qualitative you have about how well does this Baroque, you know, Rube Goldberg machine enterprise uh, work or have they essentially through so many iterations over, you know, 15, 20 years with admittedly, you say the companies occasionally choosing to ignore, but nonetheless, the companies have a, an incentive to get this right enough. So that way they're not on the, you know, facing the ire of Beijing. And, and the Communist Party is a has a fairly long history of, you know, making snap evaluations on when something is a protest that you can let disintegrate or when you need to, to slam the door shut. So just thoughts on what this looks like in practice after having read so many of these logs. I would first say that this is the farthest thing you can get from a well-oiled machine. It's pretty, pretty chaotic. These logs are literally Word documents that were on a shared drive. So a lot of them are copied and pasted. So a huge amount of the work was just simply deduping these logs because they would copy and paste the ones that were still relevant to like the next day's log, for example, and then they'd add a few things and... The documents themselves are a complete mess. But I think what's interesting 
is that, I mean, I don't know if this is exactly the same way that it works today, but the system is incredibly decentralized. So from what I understand, and Christopher Cairns did a lot of work on this in his dissertation, is that each individual social media company is mostly answering to local bureaucracies within the provincial level. And of course, they do take directives from higher up, but really they're working with local governments and provincial governments, and they're working with the particular government in which that company is incorporated. And you have multiple different bureaucracies that are sending directives to Sina Weibo in this case. And there are many cases where those directives conflict or where one, uh, say the internet management office is giving one directive and then there's a subtly different directive from you know the state council information office and they have to decide which one they're going to follow and occasionally it's very unclear what can and cannot be published so um sina will have to make you know these really arbitrary decisions so i think during the xinjiang protests of i think it was was it 2000 12 or 2011, there was this one log, which was really interesting. It's basically whoever was in charge, the manager was saying, we are getting so many directives. We don't know what to do. We're getting so many takedown requests. We couldn't possibly process them all. So we're waiting to hear from the higher ups what the hell we should do. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite messy. They do um, offer this really cool glimpse into government intent, though, regardless of whether or not that intent is followed through. So because of the way that the logs are taken down, it's basically every single incoming uh, censorship order is marked down on this shared document. And then they have a few notes about what to do. And they have some automated systems. They have some keyword systems. They have some, I guess, very simple forms that people can fill out about new posts that they're seeing that are related to a particular order, but it's not very sophisticated. It's very, very simple. Mary, can I, can we make this concrete by, by bringing out one of the case studies and just kind of walking through what this looks like in practice? You had several case studies that, that you talked about, but the, maybe the one that folks will have the most knowledge of, or at least contextual knowledge of is Boshi Lai. So how did this system come to bear and what were some of the moving parts or misalignments and alignments uh, as the party and these companies navigated this not entirely sui generis, but nonetheless, um, pretty remarkable series of events around Chongqing? We chose a couple, I think three different cases that we drilled down into, and then there are some other just more anecdotal things throughout the paper. The Boishi Lai scandal was something that we selected intentionally because it was probably the most important event in that time period of sort of intra-elite struggle. So the way we sort of coded it is that it's a highly sensitive, a highly political event, but it has low collective action potential. It's really not the case that there were going to be thousands of people on the street, uh, maybe in Chongqing, where, where Bo Xilai apparently was popular, but this was more of a, of a kind of within the palace intrigue, um, but equally, you know, and maybe perhaps even more so disturbing to the top party leaders, particularly uh, Xi Jinping as he was taking office. Um, I think one important component of that case is the way in which 
Uh, and this is something that Blake was just referencing in terms of the messiness of the system in a kind of highly decentralized, highly fragmented political system. But initially, the Boisulai scandal is an emergency, right? There is either some kind of, you know, whether you want to call it a coup, but some sort of intra-elite struggle. Uh, Wang Lijun has fled to the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. And there's a kind of, not a paralysis, but certainly an emergency from the regime's perspective. And um, the censorship guidelines really shift from a much more sort of hard approach in terms of just removing um, items of, of conversation off the internet as they deal with this intra-elite struggle to the period afterwards where he's actually being tried, right? And then you see this kind of more massaging of public opinion really kicking in, allowing for discussion about Boisilai as long as it's contained. But also they want to know actually who is supporting Boisilai on, on social media. They want that reported up. They want percentages. They want to know who's talking about it at different points of time in the day. So again, it, it is decentralized and it is messy, but I think there's a certain logic to the way in which the regime, you know, adjusts. And going back to some other more recent examples where I think this really helped me understand what was going on, if you look at the death of Dr. Lee, again, that is an emergency, right? People were outraged on the internet. The system was breaking down. They couldn't contain the number of people. They certainly couldn't take down all the posts because there were just way too many of them. From that period to what's going on more recently, where the regime, both domestically and internationally, is really taking a concerted attempt to guide public opinion about what happened in the early stages of COVID, what is China trying to do now in terms of, it, of its vaccine diplomacy. So it just a different, a different approach to social media in a period of emergency versus a period of um, an opportunity in a sense to really guide public opinion. And I'm guessing the just to linger on this a bit more, the decentralized nature of this, which can look like a not a failing of the system so much, but maybe a, a structural downside gives it a level of speed and flexibility. Again, you, you don't get always the, the cleanest of, of solution, but if you essentially have a lot of actors with a broadly structured incentive system such that they, again, they won't know with perfect fidelity, but but they'll know the kind of outer bounds of what the center may want. That may be a, a better system than if you did have a real Leninist sort of red telephone on everyone's desk and you had to be making a series of calls saying this is what the, the line is. It also gives the central government some opportunity, and this is you know not just about information control, but about the system in general, that in that kind of fragmented decentralized system, it gives it an opportunity to develop the blame game, right? Who is going to be scapegoated for this problem? And almost invariably, it's going to be someone at the local government level. There may not be an answer to this, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on because what you've been outlining here is a evolving process, a, a set of best practices, an organizational approach. And Blake, you'd mentioned some of the training manuals, which are a venue for reflecting learnings as you kind of iterate the system. I'm just curious, do we know anything about, and it doesn't have to be this issue, you know, Mary, I don't know if you've got other things you've worked on, but I'm curious about the party as a, as a learning institution, not a, not a Shvesi Dong, but like, you know, is there, where are the iterations processed as the, the party learns? Cause I, I, you know, sometimes when I talk with academics, I come away with this feeling of like, man, the party's just like, 
so inept, you know, like they, they just, you know, it's so fragmented and, you know, like it really, you know, maybe we in DC have it totally wrong. And, but, but then I begin to think like, but gosh, the, the party falls upward quite a bit, you know, and it seems to have, you know, confronts challenge, you know, brute forces its way around. The system still has a lot of lingering pathologies and problems, but they do enough tweaking and refinement. But I guess your thoughts on where does that where does that refinement occur within the party? Do we understand anything on the process of learning and reflection? If a, you know, an event goes on in, in Timbuktu and it went well or didn't, do we know anything about how the party reflects on that? Is there a structure or a system in place for investigation, processing, analysis, conclusions, and then kind of spitting that back out to the party to say, this is how we move upward and onward? Or is it left up to, you know, CAC does its own thing and, you know, NDRC does its own thing? One of those mechanisms of of learning actually is the documents that we analyze in the paper themselves. So uh, one of the key parts of these particular manuals and kind of textbooks for local government cadres is case studies. And they discuss particular uh, public opinion crises and, um, you know, public opinion emergencies and what went wrong and what should have happened, what we can learn from the mistakes or the successes of, you know, X, Y, Z, public opinion emergency. And these really are, I guess, kind of, um, they kind of exist in this directed improvisation where you have the center giving these kind of broader mandates to, I guess, explore ways of monitoring um, cyberspace, explore ways of monitoring public opinion and reacting to it within a framework that is set out in, in these types of documents. And one thing that's really interesting too in these, these logs is the some of them suggest that after a, a public opinion crisis, that local governments come up with a contingency plan for if something similar happens again in the future. So they're encouraged to reflect on what went wrong, what went well, and do some sort of self-criticism about how they might uh, better deal with such an incident in the future. And I think those documents are, I guess, there's this kind of mass line aspect of of learning where you see a lot of these documents that that we analyze they're being put out by the central government or by the national government and they're taking particular cases and they're drawing from these particular contingency plans and retransmitting them back down to local governments in the form of these um, instruction manuals and documents Final question. I've kept you both far too long. And if we didn't, I forget if we mentioned it or not, but the data you're looking at is just bounded within the, the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao period. And Blake, I know you've done some subsequent work, but you know, uh, just wanted to get a sense from both of you, either informs judgment or wildly speculative, either is fine with me. How different do you think things are now in terms of some of the base conclusions or processes that you've seen work? Does a migration to WeChat, for example, as being, you know, kind of one of the dominant communicative platforms and discourse platforms shift any of this? Or do you feel like we'd likely for it to look under the hood, likely to see much the same in, in 2021? 
A lot of that is, is kind of difficult to answer because we don't have the same kind of data for more, I guess, current social media platforms. But we do have data for up to 2014. And we can see that there is in, in some um, in a working paper of mine, I have found uh, pretty stark differences in the attention paid to government leadership and government criticism from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. So much more emphasis on discussions of government leadership and government criticism in the Xi era than in the Hu Jintao era, which I think makes a lot of sense when you think about, I guess, the uh, the kinds of, of things that you were seeing censored in the logs. There's this one really funny picture of Xi Jinping or, or of a baby that like uh, is Xi Jinping's doppelganger and his face looks really, really similar to Xi Jinping. And it wasn't really, really criticizing him, just it was kind of like a silly photo. And that was one of the things that showed up in the log that they were to delete. But in terms of WeChat, I think we're still living in the world of, you know, big V type users and influencers. And I, I think um, more than ever, the party is realizing that if they want to, I guess, spread their message and if they want to win the battle of public opinion, they really have to focus on individuals rather than, you know, just really brute force deleting content. I think it's the same issue. And you can see that in the way that they're dealing with the recent events um, in Xinjiang and the, the news reports coming out of Xinjiang, they're having an army of individuals going online and spreading videos about how all of the things that Pompeo is saying are lies. Um, there's a, a great report um, by ProPublica in the New York Times by Jeff Cowan, um, his, his colleagues about that, that's, that's uh, quite interesting. And they're also even doing that in the foreign press as well. They're really co-opting certain expats from the UK and the US to try and spread their message about Xinjiang. So whether or not it's effective, it seems like they still are, you know, focusing a lot of their efforts on co-opting individuals and paying attention to influence. I wanted to agree with some of the things that Blake was just saying about the way in which the regime, I think the thing that strikes me most, well, there's two things. One is that, in a sense, the period that this paper draws from was really the end of an era in terms of greater toleration of social contention online, permission for grievances, and including social grievances that did have a collective component to it. For example, labor protests, which is one thing that I've studied in other areas. So I do think that there is kind of a, a, a fundamental shift with Xi Jinping, much more focus on his authority and legitimacy as a leader, not allowing for him to be ridiculed even in these baby pictures. The other thing that I think is important, and Blake is referencing it in, in regards to the Xinjiang story, which is a global story, is that we don't know because we don't haven't looked at it whether or not this type of persuasion and the use of influencers is more convincing, but it is certainly sophisticated. And I think that's a big shift from earlier days, even 10 years ago, when most of the CCP's external propaganda was quite heavy handed and fell flat. And some of the stuff still does, like the wrapping. They haven't gotten the wrapping right yet. But if you look, if you scroll through things like Twitter or Facebook and you see the Chinese um, state official news or things like on TikTok, it, it, it is much more sophisticated. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's also, at least for some people who perhaps 
have kind of low information about China in general, that it's actually also quite convincing. Mary Blake, thank you so much for the conversation. And as, as a reminder for folks, the name of the article is Who Not What? The Logic of China's Information Control Strategy, which can be found via a subscription to the China Quarterly. It's open access. Is it? <laughs> it's open. They have, uh, Mary and Blake have kindly used uh, their own uh, or, or their own funds or university funds to ma make this available to all of us. So thank you very much. It's a great, great discussion and really recommend folks go out and read the article for just a, a more granular understanding of objectives of opinion, guidance, censorship, and, and what the process looks like uh, on the ground. So Blake, Mary, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you so much for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 